This is the Thinking Mind Podcast. Maybe we can start if I could just ask you a bit about your background, sort of your journey through psychiatry. Yeah, okay. So uh, before I did uh, medicine and psychiatry, I did a degree in theology and religious studies at Cambridge. Um, and in the course of which I became very interested in the relationship between culture and cognition and brain function. Um, and at that time, I did a, an undergraduate dissertation on uh, a theory, uh, a, a neurocognitive theory of religious experience at the time. This was in the mid-1980s. Um, and when I completed my studies, I was initially planning to do a PhD in biological anthropology to pursue this field of research further, which at that time was called neuroanthropology. Um, but for various reasons, I decided to go into medical uh, training, I think partly because medicine gives a very comprehensive understanding uh, of the human person, both from a biological and psychological point of view and also there's a practical side to medicine a clinical side that was interesting um, so I thought medicine seemed like a good combination of, of science and practice and a, hopefully a humane discipline that would help me to uh, find out about people in a, in a way that's interesting. Yeah I mean it is the case that I guess what clinical medicine forces you to do is actually contend with the nature of the world as it is and like you say it's very practical so it's I guess it's a bit less it's a bit more where the, where the rubber meets the road and you can actually see not only how are these ideas sort of in academia, you know, what, what interest they have on that level, but also how can they be of a very practical use to a person in, in, a, in an everyday situation? Yes, I'd agree with that. Well, I think, you know, medicine is a practical discipline. So uh, as a practical discipline, you have to make decisions on the basis of the information that you have. And often that makes you forces you really to think very carefully about what the influences on people's behavior are what influences on their disability and distresses and what you can do to uh, intervene in a practical way to help people um, but the other good thing about that is um, that uh, people are complex and they make you realize that your theories don't always fit uh, so they uh, broaden your understanding uh, of what people are just by uh, contending with the complexity of what human beings are. Mm -hmm. It forces you to constantly have an, a, a standpoint of curiosity. You can never, you can never decide that you reached an end point because people are so complex. You always have to keep that open mind. You always have to be willing to uh, revise your ideas. That's what I like about it, is revise your ideas, ingest new ideas. Yes, I'd agree with that, and and actually also um, the. Uh, of course, one of the characteristics of human beings is that we're embedded in society and culture and history, and that introduces variation into what we are too. Um, and so we uh, can see commonalities in human beings across cultures and periods of history, but then there's also the locally distinctive characteristics that people have. And uh, obviously working uh, in a place like the UK, in a place like London, you see people from all over the world. And uh, so there's a constant learning process to try and understand how their particular biography and background has influenced the how they meet the world and the types of difficulties they experience. Of course, and 
I guess that's one of the one of the major problems that psychiatry has faced over the years. So we all, we all often try and deal with an idea of sort of what it means to be normal or what's the kind of standard of health against which we should be comparing people who we judge to be mentally ill in some way, shape or form. How do you think about the relationship between these cultural factors and mental illness? Well, I think it it, it raises uh, quite deep questions, really, about how we think about psychopathology. I think there's a question, uh, there's an important question about the types of experience that people have. We could call that a phenomenological uh, question, um, and how culture influences the types of experience that people have. Um, And also whether the types of experience that people have that, that... that we can describe in the language of psychopathology, of descriptive psychopathology, such as auditory verbal hallucinations or delusions of control, whether they are intrinsically linked to distress and disability or in actual fact whether some of those variations in experience just form part of culturally valued and uh, culturally cultivated or religiously cultivated or sanctioned forms of experience, variations in experience. Um, So I think there's a question about interpretation, understanding at that level. Um, So I think this set of issues had been recognised for a long time. So, for example, um, in the 1980s, there was an influential book by Roland Littlewood and Maurice Lipsedge called Aliens and Alienists. Uh, And really, the whole thrust of that book was to encourage psychiatrists to try to take into account the cultural context and background of people as an important influence um, on the types of experience they have and how they react to stress and what the resources are available locally in order to support people in their adaptation to to distress. And perhaps to make um, psychiatrists who are very often from a different cultural background from their patients to think carefully Uh, about whether what is being encountered is a typical presentation of a mental disorder uh, or whether it, in fact, is um, something that might superficially resemble a psychiatric disorder but might, in fact, uh, represent some kind of other acute response to distress which um, has its own characteristics uh, and can be locally uh, managed in a way that doesn't necessarily involved a very high level uh, a high level of involvement of psychiatric care or treatment so i think that that kind of approach um was uh, important um but i think also there are questions about um pointing towards uh what the constraints or influences on people's experience experiences are and if we think that there are there can be variations in experience uh, which are actually which in some ways resemble the types of experience that occur say in psychosis or in dissociative psychopathology but uh, whether they don't in fact represent illness in their own right then that raises an important question about what causal influences on those experiences are shared between psychopathology and religious experience, for example, uh, and what are different, uh, unique to to psychopathology and religious experience. And so that's one of the areas that we have been thinking about and researching. 
Yes, and I, I think in our sort of modern, very rational Western world, often we try and think about more religious-type experiences in this context. So are they just these sort of psychotic experiences? Could they be explained by uh, psychopathology? But obviously the point you raise is quite different, that these experiences might be distinctly different. They might have some similarities, but I think it's probably important to point out that they have important differences as well. What do you think are the, the primary differences between what someone would call a religious experience and a more typically psychopathological experience, like a psychotic episode or a dissociative episode? Well, I think as a, as a point of departure, I mean, I think we'd have to recognise that religious experience itself is, a, is an umbrella term. So that encompasses an enormous variation in types mm -hmm. of experience and forms of sensibility that human beings have. Um, I mean, we can start to think about certain characteristic types of religious experience that have been reported quite commonly in different settings. Uh, so, uh, for example, um, uh, mediumship uh, or prophecy, uh, in which a person uh, is understood to be, uh, to be a vessel or a medium through which a supernatural agent, a god, or gods, demons, spirits, ancestors are communicating, and in which their normal sense of um, their normal sense of self is uh, suspended or absent, and uh, in actual fact, it's another agent communicating through, with them, controlling their speech, controlling their movement. Um, is so that's a very fundamental form of religious experience. It, it's it's at uh, the heart, not just of um, uh, mediumship or oracles in many societies, but also in prophecy and the whole broad category of revelatory experience. Mm -hmm. So it's how many human beings think about how information from the supernatural realm is communicated into human life. So you might say, well, um, there are certain respects in which those types of alterations of self-experience can in fact be described in the language of psychopathology. So, for example, um, if it is the case that uh, you're, uh, you are communicating thoughts or ideas which are communicated, inserted into your mind by supernatural being, then in, in the language of psychopathology that can be called thought insertion. Or if it is the case that your actions are controlled by supernatural agents, such as you're writing information down, that they're controlling your hand, so for example in the revelation of scripture, then that can be described as owning control of movement. Um, if it is the case that your identity is substituted for um, a supernatural agent, then in the language of psychopathology that could be described as dissociative identity change. So the point there is that the phenomenological language of descriptive psychopathology is uh, in fact very accurate in describing very precise uh, specific ways in which the normal experience of selfhood can vary. Um, but of course the mere fact that you can describe experiences as varying in those ways does not in itself, implies psychopathology. And I think that's the point here. So that's why I think a fuller um, understanding 
of the context within which variations and experience occur, the significance attributed to that locally, and whether or not those experiences are associated with disability or distress, or whether they are culturally valued or sanctioned or recognised is, is clearly important in working out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So you're pointing to the idea that because the language that we use in psychiatry can easily map on to these um, phenomenological experiences quite well, and I guess the danger is that that would lead one to believe that they're one and the same, but you're making the case that no, they're not the same, that despite these sort of superficial differences, um, there are actually deeper ways of telling telling the two apart. Um, so things like how much is the person actually being disabled by the experience that they're having in their day-to-day life, how much are they functioning on a sort of socio-occupational level, things like that. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, so these are all clearly very important considerations and they're, they're very practical considerations as well because I think from a practical point of view um, there are uh, all kinds of variations and experience that are going on all of the time in the population as a whole only a tiny proportion of which ever come to the attention of psychiatrists and that is normally in the context of distress or disability or breakdown if I just use that lay term uh, in general sense but all of those considerations are clearly important in trying to make sense of what's going on uh, and uh, respond to it uh, appropriately. Do you think that in the case of genuine psychopathology, for example, a case of schizophrenia, um, do you think it's possible that a culture that is more accepting of those uh, phenomenon, of the phenomenon of schizophrenia and are able to build a cultural context around their psychopathology. So, for example, if someone were hearing voices and perhaps in their culture they were thought of as being some kind of oracle, like you mentioned. So it's kind of the reverse of what you're saying. So rather than religious experiences being misidentified as psychopathology, do you think psychopathology could be incorporated into a culture in a way that's acceptable, in a way that could reduce harm, things things along those lines? Uh, I think in, in general terms the... The answer to that is yes, uh, but I think that question has to be quite carefully handled uh, for a number of reasons. I do think that if we think about where psychiatry is a a discipline, where we are now, uh, psychiatry, I think, has always had an uneasy relationship with religious experience, and I think there are historical and cultural reasons for that. Um, So psychiatry as a discipline really started to form in the 19th century, um, in an age of uh, secularization, in which most of the practitioners uh, were not religiously observant or no longer religiously observant. And I think uh, also, actually, as a discipline, it formed uh, in Western Europe and North America predominantly in more uh, ethnically and culturally homogeneous societies. So the actual assumptions of the people doing the psychiatry and the types of Worldview and forms of experience that they came um, into contact with, I think, uh, in general, um, had its own very particular historical and local characteristics. And I think one of the consequences of that uh, is that psychiatrists in general have never really operated with a substantive concept that religious experience had value. Uh, or that, uh, and when I say value, 
what I mean is not necessarily, it, this is not a point about the truth value of religious experience. It's not a point, it, it's not an argument so that religious experience is necessarily imparting important information about the world that we should all take heed of. That's a separate question. The point uh, I'm making is really about the locally perceived value to a rele- to that person or to a relevant community. And also I think a fundamental point is to what extent the variations in experience actually conform to local expectations. Because this, um, I think, is also relevant to the question of how to evaluate alterations of experience in somebody from a different cultural background who is acutely distressed. And this actually goes back to one of the points that was made back in the 80s by um, Lipsedge and Littlewood in their book Aliens and Alienists, is that I think one of the criteria for picking out whether or not uh, what you're encountering is an episode of illness is whether the it's not just to do with the uh, resemblance phenomenologically between the type of experience somebody is having and within a conventionally recognised mental illness, but it's also to do with the level of distress, the disability, and whether or not the way that person's experience of the world is unfolding is also regarded as locally problematic and falling outside what would be recognised as expected within the context of, of local religious experience. And I think that having that additional perspective is very important in making sense of what's going on. One might also talk actually about the time course of experience as well. So it's very often the case that culturally influenced or sanctioned religious experience will occur within particular contexts. So, for example, it might occur within the context of worship. So if you think about a Pentecostal church and people speaking in tongues, for example, or if you think about one of the African prophetic churches where people will prophesy in the course of uh, worship. The point about this is that there is a shared collective context within which alteration of experience occurs. And uh, there is a kind of, if you like, there is a temporal structure whereby there is uh, there are certain types of places within which altered self-experience occurs. Uh, and that alteration experience does not intrude or obtrude into other areas of life in a way which interferes functioning, like the ability to work or the ability to look after children. And I think when you get a kind of uncoupling of altered experience from the context in which it's locally recognised as it should occur, then I think that is one of the markers of saying, well, actually, this this is a, what we're dealing with here is properly thought of as an episode of illness. But even there, actually... Um, I would say that some of the decisions about whether or not an alteration experience uh, or sensibility, um, some of those decisions about whether or not it represents valid religious experience or psychopathology, I think some of those decisions are actually inherently very difficult uh, to make. Uh, And what we may be uh, really bumping up against are two different frameworks for thinking about human experience. The reason I say that is because it is possible for people to be religious um, innovators or to have a particular uh, standing within religious terms in which they are recognised as having a unique alteration experience or type of perspective on the world, which is not necessarily shared 
with everybody else. And this might be part of the pathway by which people become recognized as shamans or mediums or oracles, depending on the cultural context or prophets. And so it's by the very nature uh, of those types of experience that they tend to belong to particular specialist roles. And so I think there is some important uh, research that has been done in anthropology uh, on this question. A lot of it actually is being done by a professor of anthropology at Stanford called Tanya Lerman, who's written very well and is doing important uh, research on the uh, cross-cultural variations in psychosis and wrestling with these questions, really, about when does an episode of altered experience embedded with this in somebody's biography when should we think about that as illness and when should we think about that as part of the process of becoming a ritual specialist of one kind or another? Um, and so, for example, a, a common way of thinking about the process by which somebody becomes a shaman, for example, or a ritual specialist, uh, is that there may be an episode of mental illness or an episode which is locally recognised as mental illness um, but which is simultaneously interpreted as a kind of spirit attack or contact with the supernatural world, through which that individual then learns to uh, master their encounter with that other realm, or alternatively they are chosen by agents within that other realm to be a vehicle through which relevant communication to the local community exists. So I think in talking about, in talking about these uh, cases... I think it's 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 um, very important for me uh, not to operate with a very binary distinction between mental illness and religious experience, culturally appropriate religious experience. I think some of these uh, some of this area is inherently difficult, not just for the Western psychiatrist, but actually also for people within those cultural settings as well, in order to to make sense of what's going on and whether. This is a staging post. The episode of apparent illness is a staging post in somebody's progression into a more stable role within the society in which they have access to other forms of understanding, or alternatively, whether this represents something which is inherently disabling and distressing and does not carry social value. Mm -hmm. Yes, so it's clearly very complex and it's something that has to be tackled on a case-by-case basis. I think it's probably also worth mentioning that even in non-religious contexts, I think people who suffer an episode of mental illness of one kind kind or another, be it psychosis, depression, anxiety, often if it's framed in, in their mind in the correct way, it can be profoundly important part of their life. Um, because it's really, it brings you in contact with your limitations as a person, the limitations of your psyche, just that immense difficulty um, can be something which really consolidates the way you look at the world. It can help you. It can be a touchstone um, that you take with you for the rest of your life. I think I, I did another podcast with Dr. Russell Razak, who wrote a bo- book about this. Um, I, I forget the name of the book, but the central thrust of the book was that these intense moments of difficulty, be they uh, mental illness or otherwise, can be really important stepping stones in our life to the to the profound, to ideas which can ultimately push us forward. Yes, I'd agree with that. And and I think the point that you make actually 
also draws attention to some of the limitations of the traditional concept of disorder or disease that we've operated in in medicine, or at least that we have applied from medicine to the domain of mental health. Um, so um, psychiatry does not, in general, have a well-specified theory of human flourishing or wellness. So illness is considered to be defined by the presence of uh, symptoms which imply a departure from normal experience in one way or other. But the approach tends to be, with respect to classifying variations in experience, it tends to be, from a phenomenological point of view, uh, quite taxonomic. So it's very much preoccupied with the description of the formal characteristics of certain alterations in experience. It's relatively insensitive to context, relatively insensitive to biography, relatively uh, insensitive to uh, history. And it tends to be categorical. And it tends to be categorical. And so the that rather atomized uh, conception of the person whereby a, uh, a, a disorder is defined by the presence of enough atoms of experience to amount to an episode of depression or to amount to an episode of schizophrenia, um, I think is has clear therapeutic limitations because I think the point that you're alluding to um, is that uh, an episode of illness considered in the context of somebody's life, their unfolding biography, uh, can actually teach them a lot about themselves. It can teach them a lot about the world. It can teach them a lot about other people. And so I think having a more... Uh, well, I think a more processual view and perhaps taking some of the ideas which uh, are you know, more commonly articulated within psychotherapy but which also do are present uh, within uh, elements of psychiatric theory as well. Um, thinking, for example, uh, some of the ideas stemming from Jung about the idea uh, that the human mind should be viewed as a self-regulating system, which uh, whereby um, episodes of illness can be viewed as arising from an intended adaptation to an internal or external aspect of the world, but which may not uh, be uh, fully successful as an adaptation, uh, but which may nevertheless uh, teach you important things about yourself. Um, may uh, I think that type of perspective can be very helpful. So it's a bit like the conclusion to um, uh, the uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's uh, rhyme of the ancient mariner. So the ancient uh, mariner, the poem concludes, a sadder and a wiser man, he rose the morrow morn. Um, and I think, so there is much that illness uh, can teach you. It, it can also actually teach you not just... Uh, the frailty of the human condition but it can also point to what you should value about the human condition as well and I think this is an important point when thinking about religious experience too because there might be a temptation to think that in the context of religious experience what religious experience is telling people is something about ontology it's telling them a new set of ideas about what exists in the world you know for they discover the reality of a supernatural agent or the supernatural agent tells them to do something in actual fact, I think the value of illness to human beings, perhaps in a broader sense, um, can be 
not necessarily that it changes your notion of what exists in the world. It's not a shift in ontology, but it helps you to think differently about what exists in the world and in your own life. It sort of uh, broadens your range of different states of consciousness. So it, it makes you realize that different ways of, of experiencing the world actually exist. Because before you have experiences like that, you're not even aware of the kinds of conscious experiences that you're not having. And then you have an experience like that, and all of a sudden your worldview is, is opened up that much more. Yeah, I'd, I, I, I would accept that in general terms. I would, I think we'd all recognize though that the the not all variations and experience are good variations and mm. experience i think this is a, a very important point not to lose sight of when talking about the relationship between uh, religious experience and psychopathology because actually i want to be clear about this that i don't want to underestimate the distress and disability associated with mental illness properly so called um and if, for example, we uh, do think about mental illness as something that we can learn from, um, it's also, it, it, that's true. Uh, but actually, sometimes there may not be, uh, mental illness is the kind of thing from which people just want to recover. Um, and there may not be grand conclusions that they can draw from it but it's just something that they need to, to get over in order to improve their lives and get on with their lives. So I don't want to impose a single uh, framework for thinking about mental illness. I think that would be a profound error. And actually, I have to say that, um, that a, a lot of uh, what we encounter as psychiatrists really does present itself very much as a disorder, um, which we are helping people to to move beyond or to recover from. Yes, so that, that's an important point. So I, I suppose what you're advocating is that we just, in psychiatry, create a bit more space to allow for the view uh, of the person actually experiencing the illness um, and just give them that, I suppose, that flexibility to experience it whatever way they seem appropriate while at the same time being responsible and providing the care that they need yes i'd agree with that i i think um i think there are two points here am i i think it part of part of this perspective i think which is trying to locate psychiatry within a, a broader uh recognition of cultural variation and influences in experience and sensibility is just to uh, perhaps make psychiatrists more open to considering uh, that not uh, all of the variations in experience and apparent distress that they encounter necessarily represent instances of mental illnesses as described in our diagnostic manuals uh, even if there can be overlaps. So I think it's a broadening of a perspective mm -hmm. about the variation experience and about the different meanings and values that can be attached to variation experience and a broader conception of the biographical, cognitive, neurobiological and social, cultural influences on motivating these variations in experience. Um, so that's part of what this is about. But I think also... Um, when we do think about episodes of distress and disability, which do properly fulfil 
the criteria for an episode of mental illness. I think in those cases, we again have to be open-minded and strike a balance between recognising that some of those episodes can be viewed as part of somebody's life journey, whereby they are confronted with difficult circumstances, they're adjusting to those, they're learning and adapting, and those episodes of illness uh, arise in the context of that. But actually other episodes of illness don't behave like that. They behave much more like uh, a, a disease in the sense in which there is a, um, uh, an impairment arising from some breakdown of the basic, uh, res- uh, basic systems that we rely upon to Can function day to day. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, I'll give you an example. Of, well, of course, there are many. I mean, there are, there are, I think there are really quite prototypic examples of that which fall within the remit of psychiatry. We think about some of the dementias, for example. So, you know, a progressively deteriorating condition uh, which uh, is, um, takes, uh, deprives people of their normal functioning. Uh, in a way that can be very cruel. Um, So that would be one such um, example. But actually, I think many cases of depression can function like that, of melancholic depression, that you see somebody with a recurrent depressive disorder who becomes very unwell, very disabled, very distressed. And very quickly often. Very quickly, and, and which, one has to say, really does behave like an illness. Uh, that they need help to recover from. It can be and very we, physical, like they might have their sleep disturbed, their appetite disturbed. Um, they can exhibit a phenomenon known as psychomotor retardation, where all of their body movements are actually slowed down, poverty of speech and thought, where the, the stream of consciousness is slowed down, their speech is slowed down. Yes, absolutely. Um, and also, I think uh, within, uh, within psychosis, within schizophrenia, we see very often we will see people who are profoundly uh, disabled uh, by psychosis. And again, in which the actual content of their delusions, for example, the types of experience they have, are inherently uh, distressing and which it's very difficult to discern within that any form of interpretation of the world which could which you can uh, could form part of their subsequent adaptation to life which they could teach them lessons uh, that's not necessarily the case for all psychosis I, I know that there is a, uh, a concept of spiritual emergency and that sometimes under conditions of profound stress that people can develop psychotic episodes and they recognize may recognize subsequently that there were elements of those experiences whereby they did lose contact with reality. But within the context of that experience, people can also say, well, I learned things about life in the way that we were talking about. And some of, the, some of what they learn about life may be, it may involve a change in their view of the world. It may be that they, be, they become religious in a way that they were no longer, pre, they were not previously religious. Or they may lose religious faith. Uh, as a consequence of psycho, it can go both ways. The relationships are complicated. Uh, but I don't want to say that every episode of psychosis is not something from which people can learn, but I think some episodes of psychosis very much behave uh, like, um, uh, like uh, disorders. Uh, and uh, it, it's you know, clearly very important to be able to help people and intervene as necessary to help people in those 
circumstances. Yes, especially in cases where psychosis is drug-induced, which is very common, especially in London. Um, it's well known that drugs like particularly amphetamines and cocaine, which directly increase the levels of dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter in the brain, um, leads to a psychotic episode. And we know that, or we have a strong theory that um, in cases of schizophrenia, it's also dopamine that may be implicated in producing some of the symptoms. So like you say, in some cases, it comes across you know, very biological, very much like a disorder with the characteristics of a disorder. Yes, I'd say that, but actually also I'd be, I would equally be cautious about assigning psychopathology to something for which the biological underpinnings are well specified. Mm. Um, I, I, I do think um, there are, you know, there is always chemistry and electricity going on in the head, which supports whatever forms of experience that we're having, or at least that's our operating assumption uh, about the world. Um, and it clearly is the case that uh, we can identify biological correlates of certain types of um, mental disorder which do uh, are different uh, from normal functioning, correlate well with the disorder and uh, alter or remit um, in tandem with treatment of the disorder. And so it therefore behaves like quite a biological condition. But actually, I, I would still... In general terms, I would still be uh, cautious about isolating biological changes too much from the total context within which the person is embedded. Um, so, uh, for example, um, the, uh, it's uh, possible to have an episode of depression uh, precipitated by losses or stresses, which uh, can then be correlated with changes in brain function. Um, but in actual fact, without the losses or stresses, the changes in brain function would not have arisen. So it's about re-embedding the person within the world uh, and recognising the full set of constraints which influence the formation of experience. Yes, yeah, so understanding the biology alone, um, it would be difficult to draw conclusions just, just based on that. Biology is merely one level of analysis yes. from which you can understand and experience. Yes, and a very, actually a very important yes. level of analysis. I mean, they are, the, you know, these are the, the brain is the organ of experience. Uh, but equally, um, I think one of the changes that we're seeing, certainly in the type of research that, that we're doing in the cultural and social neuroscience research group, uh, but perhaps more broadly as well, is a movement away from a style of explanation which really originated with the lesion deficit method in the 19th century, which basically sees mental disorders or neuropsychiatric disorders as um, caused by a lesion in the brain. And when I say lesion, you can think of that in uh, very concrete terms as damage to a region of the brain. Uh, but actually that idea has persisted in terms of the attempt to uh, specify alterations in brain structural function, which may be more subtle and only detected through large-scale um, neuroimaging study designs, where you uh, measure brain activity or structure in lots and lots of people, average results, and compare them to typically developing people like a control group. And that allows you to say, well, person with condition X has these sorts of changes in the brain. The point about that type of explanation 
is that it points back to the brain as the primary level of explanation and therefore experience is viewed as a kind of dependent variable upon brain function. The point that I would make is that, uh, that we, if we think about re-embedding the person within the world, within the social world, within development, then we can actually see how the influences on brain structure and function developmentally or acutely are important to the causation or emergence of an episode of psychiatric illness. But they don't occur in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a broader set of, of, of historical, developmental and immediate constraints in the environment which influence the onset, course and character of episodes of uh, mental illness. And actually, in fact, in some cases, I think the appropriate way of thinking about the relationship between the brain and experience um, is that uh, changes in belief, expectancy or attribution produce changes in experience through effects on brain function. Yeah. So it's actually changes in belief and expectancy and social context and practice can do alter experience through effects on brain function, but the brain function would not alter without the requisite changes in attribution, belief, interpretation, expectancy, social context. Yeah, so these the biological forces aren't acting in, in a vacuum, like you said. They're um, interacting with and being affected by things which we would consider social and psychological. Yes. Um, I mean, I think we, we've been talking a little bit about religious experiences, psychosis profundity um, and we mentioned drugs as well it would be hard not to talk about to throw a spanner in the works about psychedelic drugs drugs which we obviously we know and we can see on your imaging are acting on a biological level and yet have this very consistent capacity to induce experiences which are considered profound life-changing transcendent etc what do you think about psychedelics so i think there are several questions which arise really i mean i think there are quite basic questions about how psychedelics work how they uh, contribute to alterations and experience and then i think there are a separate set of questions about what their potential therapeutic value is or is not Um, I think if we take the first question first, I I think there can be a tendency to think of uh, of a psychedelic drug of one kind or another as uh, producing alterations in experience at a uniquely neurophysiological level. But in actual fact, there is a arc of explanation going back to the first wave of psychedelic research in the 1960s and 70s, which at that time was influenced by an emotion researcher called Stanley Schachter, who originated the label theory of emotional states, which emphasises the importance of cognitive appraisal uh, on shaping the content of psychedelic experience. So that, again, points us back to understanding the role of context, expectancy, attribution, the broader world in which the person is embedded in shaping the nature of psychedelic experience that a person has and the difference it makes to them subsequently, the reception of the experience. So by cognitive appraisal, do you mean how the how they contextualise the experience? Yeah, so the, the types of concepts that you draw upon 
to interpret the nascent changes in experience that arise from the mm. administration of the drug. So, for example, um, and I think this is uh, important research that is yet to, be, yet to be done systematically now within the current phase of psychedelic research, it is understanding uh, the effect of prior expectancy and beliefs about the world on the content of experience. So, for example, um, the administration of psychedelic uh, drugs like psilocybin may be uh, associated or have certainly been reported to have been associated uh, with unitive mysticism-type experiences in which there is a attenuation of the sense of self as separate from the rest of the world, from separate from other people. Um, uh, but equally, the administration of those drugs can be associated with experiences, very vivid perceptual experiences of encounter with supernatural agents. So they are they can occur within the same episode. Um, but I think part of the research that we need to do is to understand, for example, the use of uh, 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 mescaline or other um, psychedelic substances which, a, which form a part of an indigenous pharmacopoeia so within the South American context, uh, when people take those drugs within a ritual setting where under the uh, group direction, prior expectations, the tutelage of a shaman, people encounter the types of being that they believe belong to their worldview. And so there's a question here for people who are outside that culture and outside the context when you administer the same drugs do they have the same types of experience or to what extent are the sorts of experiences influenced by prior expectations and belief? And one way of thinking about prior expectations and belief is that if there is an absence of a strongly specified local theory about what should happen when you take the drug, how does that change the nature of the experience you have? So it may be the experience you have is not one that's characterised by encounters with jaguars that have a particular mm -hmm. local attributed significance but by different sorts of experience and perhaps more of these unitive types of experience that seem to be reported by uh, in the more recent research in, um, in uh, weirds, Western-educated, industrialised mm -hmm. um, students, basically. Um, there, is a, there is a precedent for this kind of research, and that really goes back to the 1960s um, to um, the so-called Marsh Chapel experiment, uh, which is when um, uh, LSD, I believe, was administered to college students uh, in a church setting. And within that context, they had more religious-type experiences. So again, it's a sort of manipulation of context and expectancy. So these are important questions, I think, about what the interplay between um, cognitive, social, cultural and physiological levels of explanation are in the evocation of psychedelic experience. The question, I think, of what the therapeutic role um, of psychedelic uh, drugs are, I think that, uh, again, is, uh, there is not one answer to that. It's going to vary with the drug. It's going to vary with the dosage. It's going to vary with the way that it is embedded within a therapeutic intervention. It's going to vary with patient characteristics. It's going to vary with the type of illness or episode of distress that a person's experiencing. So I think it's very important to take a step back 
from a, a global view that psychedelics are good or bad and just uh, fractionate it really into probably what are dozens of questions, quite specific questions, rather than a yes or no. Mm-hmm. So the impression I'm getting is that um, much research remains to be done to answer these very, very specific questions. Yes, and I, and I, would, uh, I would say that. And I, and I do think, I have to say, I do think caution is warranted in the use of these uh, drugs. It's not to mean that they shouldn't be evaluated, um, but I think a, a, a sort of um, exhilaration about the possibility of the rediscovery of psychedelics um, could be very unhelpful to people. Um, so uh, the uh, the prohibition on the use of the drugs in the um, really the kind of late sixties and seventies and so on was not without cause. Um, you know, there, and we just see in the case of uh, uh, cannabis, for example, which is a drug that's continued to be used, um, that there are a minority of people uh, who become extremely unwell yes. when they take, um, they take cannabis and who would be much better off had they never taken cannabis. It's not to say everybody who takes cannabis becomes unwell, but there are some people who are vulnerable to the effects of that. And so I think it's very... Uh, important that we have a cautious uh, approach to this because, um, you know, the first principle of medical ethics is uh, primum non nocera, first do no harm. I think some of the enthusiasm stems from the fact that in the psychopharmacology world there is a sense of of stagnation that we're, we're sort of very much dealing with the same therapeutic options over and over again. Um, so I think as a result, whenever we have a new sort of field of research, I think, like you said, I think exhilaration is, is a danger there. Um, and I, I tend to take the, the viewpoint that, yes, it should always be about sort of very, very cautious, conservative um, progress. But you know, at the same time, progress, answering the questions that need to be answered um, so that we're actually in a position to make the correct decisions and maybe... Um, change policy in the direction that the data is suggesting yes that's right but i think what's what's really unique about um the uh, whole topic of psychedelics is the enthusiasm uh, that its advocates have and i think the reasons for that is because the drugs are so powerfully transformative in of experience mm-hmm. and so there are many people who've taken the drugs and feel that they've made profound personal breakthroughs in the types of their understanding of the world the types of experience have been available to them their ability to form relationships with other people attaining a new sense of themselves perhaps putting uh, feeling that sort of ancient injuries have been put to rest um and so on and so uh, and actually also, not least, because people who take psychedelic drugs, uh, often the nature of those experiences evoke religious or religious-type interpretations of their significance. So we're often dealing with a kind of cosmically exalted uh, sense of the world uh, resulting uh, from these uh, experiences. But actually, I, from that point of view, um, Jung made uh, an interesting comment once. He was asked uh, this um, really must have been in the late 50s, early 60s, after the uh, Albert Hoffman's accidental uh, discovery of um, LSD, whether he would take uh, psychedelics. And his answer was along the lines of, um, in order 
to take the drug, I'd need to feel able that I could integrate the conclusions of the experience into my way of life, into my adaptation to the world. And that's a very fundamental question, because if, uh, if the use of these drugs occurs outside a context which has resources to make sense of them, then in actual fact the outcomes can be highly idiosyncratic and often very unhelpful to people, a source of profound confusion and precipitating people into mental distress. Yes, I heard that he said something along those lines. I remember him being quoted as saying something like, beware of unearned wisdom. Yes. That there are sort of ideas or ways of thinking about the world or ways of looking at the world that you might not be ready for. And Yes. Um, when psychedelics introduce you to those ways of looking at the world, it can actually have a, a traumatic effect if you're not in the right state of mind. Yes, indeed, yeah. I think another reason for the enthusiasm around them is the fact that it would look like were they to be introduced in a medical context it would be quite short term so it would be one or a few doses as opposed to many mainstream psychiatric drugs which are prescribed chronically for for months or even years at times so i think that that is part of the appeal and sort of relatively few physical side effects um and the relatively low danger of physical toxicity as well, I think is quite appealing. But also probably the fact that these drugs aren't purely, like we alluded to before, these drugs aren't a purely pharmacological intervention. They certainly act pharmacologically, but they also seem to be you know, a psychological mm. uh, intervention. Um, to a degree, depending on the context in which they're taken, it could be a social mm. intervention as well. And then some would argue that it could be a spiritual uh, intervention. Yes. Speaking a bit more broadly, not just about acute religious experiences, but spirituality in general, mm. where do you think we are in the West in terms of our relationship to, spiritu to spirituality? Do you think we need more in these very, very rational times? Well, I mean, that's a very it's profound a bit, yeah. question. I think it raises the... Um, even actually the terms in which the question is set up merit reflection, I think. Um, spirituality as a term is not an agreed term, actually, in terms of what mm. it means. So some people um, talk about spirituality as something which is very tied into religious experience, is anchored within religious observance. Um, that's certainly the traditional use of the term spirituality, um, over the centuries but I think in the context of secularization um, spirituality has been used um, as a way of articulating um, human beings finding a sense of their place in the world um, which is in some way uncoupled from traditional religious faith that's a very new uh, application of the term spirituality it's only really arisen perhaps within the past 100 years or 200 years at the most, probably the past 100 years. So it's kind of something to occupy the space between pure secularism yes. and more uh, traditional religious practices? Well, you can think about it. Uh, so again, th there are many different spiritualities that people advocate. But if we um, think about fundamental questions, um, who am I? Where do we come from? Where are we going? 
um, then many people feel that the answers provided by science in themselves are not sufficient to provide fully satisfactory answers. Um, and so uh, there is a question also. I mean, science is very good at uh, causal explanation. Um, it can't explain everything, but it's been very successful ex explaining big bits of the world and little bits of the world. Um, but then the question of um, how should I live and how should I relate to other people? What is my place within this world? What are the sources of value in this world? Are not dictated by science, and it's not the job of science to do that. So I think it's understandable that as religious observance has declined um, for many people, uh, that there is a perceived gap uh, that people want to uh, explore and address and find ways of resources to draw upon to help navigate the project of life. Mm -hmm. How, how do you feel about it personally, having studied theology at Cambridge and then later um, becoming a psychiatrist? Do you have a relationship with spirituality or religion? Well, I'd say that I have relationships with spirituality and religion. Um, so I don't profess a specific religion, um, but I have a, certainly have a sense of religion. Uh, I was brought up as a Roman Catholic, so I've got that background. Um, and uh, but through studying uh, theology and religious studies, I um, studied comparative religion, so I studied Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, I have spent a lot of time in the Middle East, um, so I've had a, um, through personal contacts. My wife's Lebanese, a good friend of mine from childhood is Pakistani origin, is from Muslim family, and so on. I've had a great uh, deal of contact with Islam, and I think. The the observation I'd make is that uh, uh, the term religion is another high-level abstract noun, which is an umbrella term, and it accommodates actually a huge variety of practices and sensibilities. And I think um, the notion of what religion is is being uh, really taken over by fundamentalism mm -hmm. uh, all over the world. And so what we are spend much of our time encountering now is the most destructive and defensive manifestations of religion which also at the same time give religion a type of bad press and the elements within religion which uh, are much more at home with um, unknowing and uh, place a much greater emphasis uh, upon um, love and a great, much greater emphasis upon uh, human flourishing and coexisting with people uh, that those forms or manifestations of religion are much more they're still present but they're under pressure and in this kind of information war that we're wrapped up in now they've been somewhat eclipsed and the people who are shouting loudest in control mm -hmm. of religions are doing their best to suppress and eradicate those manifestations within those great traditions. So there's a great contest going on in the world at the moment between different forms of sensibility. Um, and the what I would say is that it will very often be the case that the uh, if we use a high-level noun like religion, that subsystems within the religion 
of one religion will share much more in common with a subsystem with another religion than between other the more fundamentalist manifestations of co-religion. And indeed, the fundamentalists are actually very similar to each other. Mm-hmm. If you put a Hindu fundamentalist next to an Islamic or Christian or a Catholic fundamentalist, and even next to a uh, sort of neo-fascist, they're actually quite similar. They're all angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're all they very all, ideological. Ideological. They're all angry. They all hate people. They're all, all scapegoating. Um, they're all very totalitarian, so <laughs> totalitarian. they're well encapsulated. All, and that's kind of a word we use to describe delusional thinking as well, when it's very, it has very specific boundaries and it's self-contained. Yes, although I would, I would, hesitate, I would hesitate to use psychiatric... Uh, I would hesitate to apply psychiatric concepts. So I think mm-hmm. in some individual instances, clearly um, people's um, mental health problems motivate an interest in extremist ideologies uh, but i think as a human phenomenon as a whole it forms it falls outside the general scope of uh, psychopathology it mm-hmm. is just part of uh, it has to be understood within terms of history and if you like normal psychology political psychology and so on but i think from a so i think from a personal point of view um i so i think it's clear that uh I think really the greatest challenge that we are facing at present as not just a society, but society as a whole, humanity as a whole, is uh, continuing to... Well, is resisting the pressure to fall into split-off camps who perceive themselves as at war with everybody else. Um, There are very strong political pressures encouraging people to do that. Um, The internet's got very wrapped up with this. But I think from the... Uh, perspective or uh, as a human being i think it is important to maintain our sense of common humanity and our kinship with mm-hmm. other human beings what's recognizing it's in the nature of human beings that there will be variation and different people have different ideas about the world that has always been the case and in the main we can coexist well with that and we can flourish together with that and i still think that remains possible and available to us as a species Uh, But that will not be the case if uh, extremist ideologies gain more and more traction, as appears to be happening at the moment. And if politicians also uh, do not stop um, appropriating elements of those ideologies in order to make people angry and frightened and vote for them. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a collective effort. From the point of view of my own uh, perspective, I think think, um, in terms of finding your place in the world um, you can think now that if it is the case that many people fall outside a well-defined tradition it's still the case that you can learn from traditions and you can learn from practices that have been explored and developed over thousands of years uh, or perhaps even more recently and I think within that context I think uh, a recognition of the limitations of our knowledge as human beings is important um, but within that, uh, an ability to um, have a deepen our sense of relationship with the world and other people is important too. And so I think we're talking really, um, in theological terms, I think we're talking as a kind of triangulation really between traditions um, which are called apophatic, apophatic theologies, uh, which essentially 
involve the uh, a reluctance to make positive statements about the nature of the ultimate or God, but equally recognise that we are embedded in something far larger than ourselves, uh, to which we are related. Um, and uh, within that, that's closely related to different types of mystical practice and sensibility. And uh, here I think, again, the ability to attenuate a strong sense of self and be more open to the world as a system of relationships is important. But then I also think that elements of atheism, the scepticism of atheism and the challenge to overly concrete ideas of the ultimate is an important corrective. And so I think it's about having a kind of being open to a dynamic interplay between the many ways in which sensibility can be fashioned and how we can learn from other cultures. And we, I would be talking, you know, but you talking about many traditions within Hinduism, within Christian, all mysticisms actually articulate some other, some form or other of this, Islamic mysticism, Sufism, certainly within traditions within Buddhism. Uh, but actually also within the secular as well, so within traditions of romantic poetry and other mm-hmm. traditions as well. So I think we just have to open ourselves and be in dialogue with the world, really, and, and dialogue with uh, with history and other... the products, really, of centuries of reflection about the nature of human beings and their place in the world. I think people are immensely afraid of contradicting ideas, often unconsciously. So whenever they you know, encounter new ideas of modes of thinking that contradict their worldview, um, they find it very frightening. So their tendency is to immediately put up defences or barriers, um, often to an irrational degree. And I actually, I think the ability or, and the willingness to in, embrace contradiction um, is, is really something that we're, we're blessed to have available to us as human beings because it's, it's really that that richness of different ideas which you mentioned um, which makes life so interesting and ultimately I, I think which um, allows us to make as much progress a, as we do as a species. One thing you mentioned earlier which I found which really resonated with me was the idea that within psychiatry we don't really have a concept for mental wellness, for thriving and I actually wonder whether this isn't a larger problem within Western medicine in general that we we tend to operate in a kind of illness paradigm where we wait for people to become sick um, and then we take steps to make them healthy as opposed to a paradigm where we, as a society, try and build in structures to the way we live to make people healthier, whether that's in a a mental sense or a physical sense, although really you could say that they're one and the same. Do you think as psychiatrists or just even as doctors in general, we should be thinking about taking steps in that direction, in the direction of encouraging health and resilience versus always sort of putting out the fires of, of illness? Yes. I mean, in fact, it's hard to disagree with that perspective. Um, I think the challenge um, is really to do with what should we be encouraging? What's the best way to increase resilience? Um, And also, I think the position we're in, we we have to strike a very careful balance as as, uh, doctors and health professionals, because I think one of the advantages of the... um, of the of of psychiatric practice and the medical orientation is it doesn't dictate to people how they should live um and i think one of the 
Um, that is to say that if somebody becomes ill and distressed and disabled, then there are grounds for intervention. Um, but apart from that, uh, doctors are not tasked in the main with directing people how they should live. I mean, there is, of course, we do have seen this increasing shift towards health promotion and preventative medicine. So, of course, there will be dietary advice given, there will be advice about drinking, there will be advice um, for people with diabetes about sugar consumption and so on. So doctors have a more health prevention role in that respect. But I think what we're talking about here is more is less about the uh, prevention of specific diseases, but perhaps more about what can we recommend to people to uh, have a more, uh, to flourish more, to have a more positive experience of their life. Here we're getting into the area of what some people call positive psychology as well. And again, I, so I think in general terms, um, I think that uh, it is good to shift the emphasis of mental health services to helping people to not become unwell in the first place, to increase resilience. Um, I do think there are questions about how far, how prescriptive we should be, because I think it's important to allow people to live their lives as they want to. Um, and so uh, the other question there is to what extent should we have a more fully developed theory of individual psychology which locates uh, which locates an understanding of illness within that and so I alluded previously to Jung's earlier ideas um, about integration so Jung was in an interesting figure in psychiatry because he actually did have a positive conception of what amounted to uh, personal development and mental health. He had a notion of individuation and integration. He viewed the psyche as a self-regulating system. So I think these are useful concepts, but the problem is, as soon as you try to specify more detail to them, then in actual fact you can overcommit yourself to a very particular notion of what a human person should be. And I actually think that we, as a society, it's important to allow a certain latitude mm -hmm. for people to be as they wish to be. Or, uh, so we shouldn't be... Uh, so there's some kind of balance to strike here. So it's not just a, uh, a question of theory, of what's the best theory uh, of how to promote uh, the absence of illness and a positive experience of life. There's a debate to have which extends beyond psychiatry about what counts as a good life. Mm -hmm. I don't think psychiatry has all of the resources to answer the question of what counts as a good life. So it's fundamentally a philosophical question? Well, it, uh, that's, that's certainly a component of it, but actually it's also a socially negotiated question as well, mm. which will vary. So what counts as a good life for a religiously observant person um, is different might in, in certain important respects for what counts as a life for, say, somebody who isn't religiously observant. There are ethical differences, ethical orientations of the world. Uh, which will make a difference to how people live. Um, the other point to make is that it's really important not to view psychiatry itself in isolation from the broader social changes that need to occur to promote well-being. Because uh, the, uh, there, there are so many arms of policy which have a bearing upon well-being, education policy, social policy, employment, work conditions and so on, which have a huge impact 
on how people are. And by the time that somebody gets to see their doctor, they're already been sort of buffeted and constrained and influenced by all sorts of their broader social environment. And we don't, we don't engineer that. Uh, so the, uh, I think psychiatry is part of the conversation, but I think it's a much broader conversation that has to go on in society about what promotes well-being. And it has an impact on the, the things you mentioned on physical health just as much as mental health, these Absolutely. social factors, uh, etc. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly, you know, it just shines a light on how complex these issues are. Um, just to wrap up, because I'm conscious of your time, one thing I'm going to start doing now, which I'm stealing from my friend's podcast, shout out to Good Faith Podcast, Christian Perrigin, is um, I'd like to see if you have a question for me, actually. I've asked you a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested to know, from your perspective, what questions do you have for a, for a training psychiatrist? Yeah, what, what do you, what's your sense of where the discipline is now what are your hopes for the future what would you like psychiatry to look like in 10 or 15 years time that's a that's a good question i think actually it revolves a lot around what we've been talking about i do think we need to think about think a little bit more broadly about what mental illness is um to move away from a more reductionist scientific purely medical model um and to a, maybe a more integrated model, I suppose you could call it, one that um, thinks about facets, so be they sort of more philosophical, um, psychological, social, etc. I, I, from my point of view, I get the impression that psychiatrists in general had a, had a wealth of psychological and philosophical knowledge up until the point where psychopharmacology became very mainstream. And then what I think may have happened is these, the arrival of these drugs on the scene was such a significant effect, event and it pushed things so hard in the sort of medical, biological direction that I worry that we've abandoned these principles of working in, for example, a psych psychotherapeutic manner. Um, and I think as a result, we've, we've lost a lot of depth as a profession. Um, so making strides to go back in that direction while, you know, using the pharma, the psychopharmacology, which is undeniably very useful. Um, interestingly, I see psychedelics as a very, very um, interesting confluence between the biological and the psychological, like we mentioned. It, it seems... It seems like these are it's, it's a sort of a meeting point between these different ways of thinking about the world, and I guess what I would hope is that that encourages people to be able to think on these multiple levels of analysis simultaneously. Um, so that's that's a bit rambling, but that's kind of my my loose thoughts on the subject. Yeah. So so I think I agree with all of those sentiments. That all of that sounds right to me one reflection i would have on that is actually the um if you like it's the broader location of psychiatrists within health services and in my medical career uh one of the things i notice is how rationed healthcare has become mm -hmm. and i think rationing runs very deep uh in healthcare and it has a huge impact on the time we have available to spend with patients and the level of understanding, individualised understanding, that we can bring to bear. 
And I think uh, until uh, the... I think it is fundamentally, there is a question of resources here. In order to provide better health care, we need more doctors and more time to spend with people. Because at the moment... We our services are geared towards dealing with people with the most extreme, most profound distress, and there are many, many people who are struggling, who we're not able to help because they don't meet the criteria for access to services. And so I think this is. So I agree with all of your comments, but I think again there is a broader political discussion to have about the availability of resources uh, and the design of health services. Yes, I mean, just to make it really concrete for anyone who's listening, um, most cases, the majority of cases of depression, for example, are likely to be seen by the GP, by the family doctor. And in general, they only have 10 minutes or so, maybe 15 minutes to see a patient on average, let's say. And I think to anyone that's trained in mental health, they would know that to properly tease out the different aspects of a person's life when they are presenting with any kind of mental health condition. Ten minutes is so insufficient, both to get a sense of what the problems are, but also to collaborate with the patient to try and design an effective solution. And I I think, yes, so because the most severe cases um, must take priority, it's rare that a patient sort of with for example, mild to moderate depression would be seen by someone, you know, who's an expert, who's a psychiatrist in a secondary care context and actually get the help they need. And often it's these um, sort of reasonably functional patients who have the most potential actually to make recovery and progress and improvement. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you can't not mention under-resourcing when you're talking about um, healthcare nowadays. Yeah, so I agree with all of that. It's, it's resourcing and how we design services as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just have one more question. Um, is there anything in particular you do to look after your own your own health in general, physical health, mental health? Are there any sort of daily practices that 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 you do? Uh, yoga, mm-hmm. um, which uh, is uh, I've done yoga on and off for years. Um, I'm not actually a great yoga athlete, but you don't have to be. Um, it's it, it's a good thing to do, and I think there's an, uh, an aspect of it which uh, aligns very well with meditation, uh, which is also a very good thing to do. Um, so I've meditated on and off over the years. It becomes harder to meditate, of course, when you become very busy um, with you know, family life and children and so on. But anyway, that you can do that. Also, um, I think actually walking is a very good thing to do. Uh, so I try to walk around London. I walk in the countryside as well. Uh, and I think it's a very, it's, it's, it's good. It's a good psychophysical practice, mm. well-being practice. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the, there are two things that I do. There might be more. Thank you very much, Dr. Dealey. It was great to hear your thoughts on all these complex issues, and I'd love to have you back uh, at some point in the future. Great, it's been nice. You are listening to the Thinking Mind podcast. 